Welcome to Coming from Left Field, where we have conversations about politics, books, and current events with your host, Greg Gottles and Pat Cummings. In the fall of 1959, Harvard admitted an unprecedented 18 young Negro men to the freshman class. Four years later, they would graduate as African Americans, changing themselves and changing Harvard. Many decades later, one of these fellows, with the help of his partner, went on a quest to reconnect with these classmates, explore lives and what time at Harvard had meant. This makes for a very good story. Well, warm greetings, everybody. Uh, very excited to have this podcast uh, with uh, Ken Garrett and Jean Ellsworth. And a wonderful book Greg and I read about a year ago uh, is The Last Negroes at, at Harvard. And uh, 10 years ago, I was in middle school. Uh, Greg, where were you in 1963, 64? Uh, likewise, junior high, junior high. Junior high. and junior high. Jean, how about you? 1963, 64? Um, high just started high school, I think. And oh, no, 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 wait. That's not right. I was in seventh grade. So oh, okay. was, yeah. oh, there you go. So Kent, how about you? What were you doing? In what? What year? 63, 64. 63. Well, 63, Graduated. I was graduating and I was headed to... Uh, NYU Medical School for a year. Good. That's what I was doing. So clearly, I'm the oldest person, I guess, on this call. Right. But we're all old. But we're but all, we're old. all old. Your your book <laughs> it was just is absolutely wonderful. The last Negro at Harvard, and I say your book. It, it's both your both of you. Right. Your book. <laughs> Kent, you get the bigger uh, lettering, but there's no doubt that this is a collaboration and. Uh, uh, a real work work of love. It is a story of uh, 18 young men that entered Harvard back in 59, and they uh, uh, went into Harvard as Negroes, which is what we called Black people at that time, but left as uh, quite changed, uh, changed uh, the Harvard Institute and changed themselves. Tell, tell me about how you decided on this book, you two. Uh Go ahead, you can start. No, well, I'll start. You were well, getting out thing, of farming. Yeah, I was getting out of farming. And uh, I've been I've been farming. I first I worked at in, in TV news for about uh, 20 years plus. I was at uh, uh, NBC CBS and NBC evening news as a news broadcaster. And in about 19 uh, I guess 60, 1996 or something, 97. I was on the subway coming back from uh, uh, New York City, uh, NBC from Manhattan, and I decided that I had to get out of it. I was on a hot subway. So I decided to go up and farm, and, um, and I moved to Delhi and I bought a farm and started farming. And I did uh, cows for about 10 years. And then after that, one gets older and uh, I, you know, figuring out what to do next. And I decided to uh, see what had happened to some of the, my classmates in uh, at Harvard. Uh, I'd gotten a notice that one classmate had died. W Harvard sends out this Harvard magazine every month. 
every two months, I guess. And you, uh, at, at this age, everybody goes to look at the obituaries to see who's still left <laughs> in the class. And uh, a good friend of mine had died, uh, who'd been in, in, in a earlier class. So I decided to think about what was happening, what happened to everybody. So decided to look, look them, uh, look them up and it started off as kind of a video and uh, Gene and I worked on that and uh, I'll let you talk about your part. Well, I, um, my background is in history of education. And so when Kent started talking about this project, I thought, oh, this is, this is a good fit. I, I would like to be involved in it. And um, so at the same time, we had just met on internet dating, if you can believe that. And that's how it goes pretty much anymore. I don't know if you know, know, but that's how it goes. So, so I was looking for a new start too. And this project just interested me. I, I don't want to say that more than, more than Kent, <laughs> but it was sort of a, you know, it was a reason to say, yeah, let's have a second date or even a third. And, and, uh, yeah, I think it was a good it was a good match because I've done a lot of interviewing of people and researching in archives and things like that. And he had uh, contacts with the individuals and he had his own experiences to uh, share. So it was a a, a nice uh, way to work together. And the guys they were spread out in I think about ten different cities or eight ten different cities in the states. And one guy was one classmate was in. Uh, Austria, we, we traveled to see him, and another one was in uh, St. Thomas, and we went down and uh, interviewed him. So we ended up with the video. We made about a 23-minute uh, thing we called sort of a sample trailer, and the idea was that we would uh, go back and uh, try and raise some money to get a, to do a larger, longer, uh, more theatrical kind of documentary. And we, I was not very good and we were not very good at just money, raising money and trying to raise money. And, you know, so we put it aside for a while and uh, did some other projects, uh, video projects and documentary projects. And then thinking about it a few years later, we decided that it probably would uh, make more sense as a book. And we put a proposal together and actually I had a uh, email query that I sent to one morning to about three different agents that had uh, said that they would uh, accept uh, unsolicited ideas for projects. And I sent it out at about eight o'clock and at about eight ten, uh, this guy had called and said, yeah, let's do it. And we went down to New York, we had an agent and it took us about what a year to do a proposal. And he sent it out to, uh, uh, I, I guess three different publishing houses and, and Houghton Mifflin uh, Arcot liked it and bought the book. And then we decided writing and the writing took uh, another year and a half, about another year and a half or so. I mean, the nice thing was that we had, during the video processing, we had done transcripts and had a lot of audio of all of the guys. And uh, so that helped us in, in, in writing the book. And again, the difficulty in the writing the book was uh, one of structure and how do you deal with 10 different characters? And Jean was very excellent about that in terms of how to structure it. Mm -hmm. 
I often refer to myself as the architect of the book because it, if we had simply written 18 life stories, it would have been a thousand pages long and rather tedious to say right. the least. It's a, it's a really classy book, but I was curious, it's a top-notch publisher, why did they deny you an index? I mean, after I finished the book, I wanted to go back and check on people and see how they connect. I don't know. There well, I, I think we never really thought about it. No, not, it wasn't anything. a question of them denying us. We right. just really didn't. Uh, uh, yeah, I don't never know. Thought, I mean, yeah. I had done academic books before and had done indexing, and maybe that's why it never <laughs> occurred to me. So I never wanted yeah. to do it. You didn't want to do the work. I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, one of the classmates did, it, did ask about that. Why did you put an index in it? Yeah. We probably should have, maybe. Yeah. Well, I, I get the. I, I get the feeling that it's a couple of books. Obviously, it's a memoir. You know, people right. are people are looking back. You know, Erickson, uh, Eric Erickson, who's a developmental psychologist, said, you know, this is the time of uh, people looking at integrity of their lives. Did it have meaning? Did it, right, you know, right. was it worthwhile? And and I really got the feeling that was a good part about this. Of where are we? What is this all about? The other thing that I got the feeling is this is a road book. Because you two got in the car, <laughs> right. and I could just see you arguing in the car and talking, and who's right, going exactly. over here, and who's going there, and people taking exactly. notes, yeah. and and it became kind of a neat journey of you two. I'm sure establishing a pretty darn good partnership and relationship as you're going through this. Right. Uh, right. And I I got the I got the feeling that it was that. The third thing that I see in this book is. It's, it's a history of civil rights. It, it's the difference between being in middle school and you know, college and high school. This was a really remarkable time of transition. Right. Um, right. I, and I'm, I'm looking back on my high school, I'm sure Greg, you too, a lot of things happened pretty quickly then. And, right. and that's interesting too. Right. So, it was just, I, every, when I started doing this architecture pro uh, project, there were so many times when I said, Kent, you're not going to believe this. This happened while you were there. And he would say, oh, right. Yes, I do remember that. Yeah. And uh, that, that was amazing. Another thing that you referred to earlier was we, I went to college exactly 10 years later, and things had changed so dramatically. Right. Right. in the college environment um you know in my college you could buy Mohammed speaks in the in the you know student union and there were whole dorms with black students only and just a, just so dramatically different. I mean in terms of the travel I mean I, I would say we probably you're so correct about yeah. the idea of the road trip and that we have a little apartment in uh down in Mexico in a town called San Cristobal de las Casas, which is in Chiapas. It's down near the Guatemalan border. And we we, we've been going there for about the last seven or eight years and we drive. And it's three days of driving in the States and two days of driving in Mexico. And that's where we wrote a lot of the book and that's where we came up with the title and uh, you know that sort of stuff. So it, that's really true, correct about that. Yeah, I got the feeling too, uh, you know, we all, uh, 
kind of are snooping on what's going on with our classmates. A year ago during COVID, I went through my whole yearbook and did an index of all the 300 and some people in my class. And, and that was interesting how you went back and started with the yearbook and who was, who was in our class. And I thought it was kind of funny. You couldn't tell who's black or not. And, and you, <laughs> you, was this really, was it 16? Was it 19? Was this guy black? Was this guy not? How, yeah. how did you go about? Uh, well, the thing is, we started, we started uh, the way we figured out who, I mean, I knew about five or six guys that I remembered. I think you do more than that. Well, I probably more than that. 10 Maybe 10, yeah, that I knew. And then two or three of them uh, lived, lived nearby, lived in New York State. And uh, I'd been in touch with periodically. But the yearbook pictures with these black and white little sort of passport like pictures. And I used that as a criteria to figure out who was black. And uh, I came up with the number 17. So we were calling the project the Black 17 for a few years or so. And then we put a, uh, the class puts out a uh, sort of a little newsletter every few months or so, every, I guess four or five months with what's going on with members of the class. And that, and we put in there, we put a little uh, item in there saying that if anyone, we were working on this book and if anyone remembered or had stories to talk about, to tell us about the 17 guys, uh, let us know and we wanna you know, put it in the book. And so we got a, a note back from a guy saying that, that 17, there's more than 17. It was like, uh, I think this guy said there were 19. Yeah, and uh, and I just said, holy crap, I mean, this is a big era here. And uh, so I went back the whole book. and, and, and so went through the, you know, pictures again. And I ended up uh, calling, uh, making this very uncomfortable phone call to some of these classmates saying, you know, ending with, uh, by the way, are you black? And, uh, you know, some of these guys would say no. And I'd say, okay, thank you. Until finally, we figured, uh, I found the guy who, uh, Jerry Secundi, who looks, who you probably couldn't tell is uh, black if you uh, looked at him. And he was the uh, 18th. And, and, and so we came up with the 18 number. And so we had a little uh, joke as we were working on the book, whenever a knock occurred at the door in the hotel or here at home, we knew it was obviously someone trying to get into the book, you know, so very worried the whole time that we would end up with 20 live or something like that. I mean, because you're black, you know, you're black sort of, you can't say you're black if you're black. And it turns out that Jerry had been, he hadn't hung out with any of the black kids. Uh, and as there's a quote from him in the book where he says that my mother didn't send me up here to this ivory school to just, you know, resegregate. Uh, he was more into integration and all that. Right. So we, I, that's how I missed him. And uh, and he well, went through his life having to say, Hi, he said, oh, this is what I say. Hi, I'm Jerry, I'm a Negro. Yeah, just to sort of, you know, not have- Get, get it straight, over. get it going, yeah. yeah. Right, exactly, yeah. Okay. Well, it's hard to tell. I don't know if you've seen pictures of Sammy Sosa lately, have you? Sammy Sosa? No, no. Oh, goodness gracious, he's he's- He's I, I Sammy Sosa was such a you know strong black 
you know, handsome guy from the Dominican Republic, and apparently yeah, he, yeah. he's he's doing the Michael Jackson thing. So you oh, really? You, you, yeah, that that that's that's maybe that's not totally related, but it is related. As how do you really tell what someone is? Right, and, right. You know, it's exactly. it's complicated. So what, what fascinated me, I, I think Kent knows this because we talked before about it, is how this connects with the uh, the philosophy of affirmative action. And uh, I, I agree with Gene when I, I'm, I'm 1969 in graduate school. Yeah, 1969 in graduate school. And uh, yeah, everything was different, but not in my department. I was a first year philosophy student and there were no black people in, in, in that class. These the conservative folks and the liberals and the philosophy department decided after butting horns, they wanted to integrate it. So, the following year, there were four or five African-American graduate students for the first time. And when I read the book, particularly, you know, Kent's account of what it was like, I got to know the graduate students who were African-American very well because I actually dated one of them when uh, she was uh, started there. So I kind of had some little bit of a grasp of what it's like to be thrown in the lion's den and essentially, that's what it was. I mean, you know, there was no preparation. There was no administrative sensitivity. It was like, oh, we've done our job. We recruited for African-American students and, and it's all good. And now it's on, on them to be successful. But if you, as in, I, I'm an observer from the outside, but observing it, it's not that simple. It's never that simple. It's a I, I, got the, I got the sense from talking to Fred Glimp and also reading about the times that, that you're right, they thought, well, once these young men come, then we're successful, it's over. You know, they, they will never change us. Um, we can just go on the way things have always been and be integrated. I mean, that was sort of the whole philosophy of Harvard in general, in the sense that you once they let you in, it was up to you to kind of sink or swim. I mean, given even the white students and all that. So uh, I'm not so sure about that, but yeah, I mean, I, that's what I, I think anyway. But I mean, I think uh, Harvard did prepare. Like there were about four or five classmates from the South, and some of them did go to uh, prep school for a summer or so, or. Uh, Freddie went for two years. And, and Freddie, another one, some, you know, went through two years to prepare them for entering this, uh, the world of Harvard, you know, this white world. But I mean, despite that, it was just really, we were really curiosities and really... Uh, uh, Maybe symbols. Yes, yeah, symbols. And, uh, you know, it was like landing on the moon in a way. Well, you were, you, you described how yeah, strange you were. How you know the 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 study that uh, Ron Blau did, the research study, was just fascinating. So he, here you're in college and everybody's doing research, and this is before we had uh, all of the board reviews and IR, IRBs and things like that. So here's this kid who's a you know college kid. He was and he wanted to interview all of the. Negroes in the class, and he did this extensive study, bright shadows in the yard. T tell right. me about tell me about that sociology study. I that, 
you can't make this stuff up. This is an no, you can't make story. it up. And plus, you can't make it up. It now, you know, in 2022 or 2020, it's, it's like infuriating. Uh -huh. I mean, at the time, I mean, the way it came about, I mean, everybody had to do a paper, you know, and Ron, you know, was, had to do a paper time and his roommate, Jack, suggested that maybe he should do something on the, uh, the, uh, you know, sort of the social life of all the Negro freshmen in the class. And Ron had sort of gotten this idea based on his sitting around with us at the black table where we would uh, tell these fantastical stories about our love life and dating and all that stuff. So Ron thought it would be an exciting story, but we finally, or I, I don't know if it was me or Jack, somebody convinced him that it would, was not enough there for a book or even a paper. And, uh, you know, he abandoned that idea and it just sort of do, do this piece on uh, who, who we were and why we came. But I mean, it was really racist uh, right. then and it's racist now, but I mean, at the time we didn't really, you know, it was just like, we, we just talked to the guy and, you know, gave him, gave him whatever he wanted. There was one, uh, John Woodford, who made fun of it and, uh, you know, in, a, in a nice way. In a nice I mean, way, yeah. He was yeah. cooperative, but he also, you know, had his moments of sort of cringing or yeah. raising his eyebrows. And and you Gene, know, your Eugene, your educational research, you were able to actually dig up the study, right? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, and he was it, under uh, the tutelage of a sociology professor, pretty famous fellow, uh, David yeah. Reisman. Reisman, yes. Who, Reisman, who, who was kind of horrible, right? With his perceptions. I, I think it was so lucky that I was able to find a, a page and a half typed double-spaced response to Ron's paper from Reisman. And some of the questions he raised to Ron were worse than anything in the paper. He wondered, for example, and, and typed this out to Ron, I wonder if any of these boys really are intellectual. His, his assumptions were just, I mean, I don't think he knew any of you. Right, uh, right. And the pathological denial of them, yes. you know, not for some reason thinking that they were lesser than, and I, it just, that's bizarre, but that's 1963 and that's part of your that, book. This is the transition right. of what was going on at, at this time. Yeah. And I, I went back to read some of the sources. You know, I went to his bibliography and got those old books and I thought, well, this was <laughs> this was the you know accepted wisdom about uh, about what Negroes, you know, went through in their lives. It was it was edifying but cringeworthy. Yeah, yeah. I, the, the other uh, thought I um, have is the, the, you were all pretty bright young men. I mean, you went through advanced schools in New York City. Did you, did you go to, not Brooklyn Tech, but to one of the advanced high schools? Yeah, I went to Boys High, which is a pretty good school. I think. Good school. And that you were all there because you deserved to be there. <laughs> this wasn't this wasn't lowering the standards just to kind of check a box off. Uh, you were all pretty right. remarkable young people. Right, right. Um, 
And uh, so it, um, you know, that that's that's something that I think is important for people to know. Then you went and the, the proof is in the pudding. Look, look how remarkably successful most of you, most of you right. are. Right. Um, and, and it was, um, it was the philosophy of the people that gave some of the money and some of the impetus to this at Harvard. It was their uh, view that these guys were out there. They just had to go out and find them. There was no sense that they would have to change their standards. They just had to get more active in locating these guys, which they did. Yeah, I mean, but for us, I mean, it was really everybody, you know, at that time, I think the class was about 1,200 guys in the class. And the problem, not, not a problem, but the idea was that everybody was sort of smart and had come from, had excelled in uh, high school or prep school. I mean, there were some, there were a number of legacy types, people who came because of their, you know, parents and family had been at Harvard for many times. Uh, and that was their sort of key to getting in. But I mean, it was very tough going from getting A's, you know, in, in, in high school to getting a C or something at Harvard because, you know, you're in this, uh, like, what is there, a curve, a bell curve or something or? Yeah, you, you're in a small, a, a bigger pond. <laughs> Just a bigger pond, yeah. I mean, that was very disturbing to uh, me and to some of the other uh, black kids there. I, I had, I was listening to your uh, documentary. I should link your short documentary in Venmo that, you know, was part of this, uh, um, so people can get an idea. And one of your classmates, I forget who he was, uh, made a statement that he had excellent training in segregated schools. And I had a very good friend, she's older than me, from Mississippi, um, um, Thelma Jackson, she's a Dr. Thelma Jackson. She's just an icon in educational circles in Washington State. And, and we would work on research projects together. And she once said that uh, I was not a victim of integrated schools. And I said, well, you mean segregated schools? She said, no, integrated. She said, our schools in Mississippi were taught by all black instructors. They were the cream of the crop. They were remarkably, you know, we got a remarkably good education. And then when Brown v. Board of Education came through, it literally wiped out all of these very good smaller schools and created a, you know, a, a very bad educational system. And that I was thought George that, Jones. Um, oh, that was George Jones. George Jones from Muskogee. Right. Um, Oklahoma. And his, uh, there is a, really giant two volume uh, history of that school. And exactly what you're saying was the case. It was a, a top notch school for any place, any student. Right, right. right. Um, and then they were forced to integrate. And right. And then they fired, uh, you know, fired a lot fired of the of these very qualified uh, instructors that could have, you and know. passionate, I mean, the community in Muskogee put so much of their time, effort, money and everything in making sure that school was just as good as they, they could make it. Yeah, that, that's, that's a success story, but 
-hmm. The reality is that, that, that uh, segregated schools were always underfunded. And so right. when you have a success story, it's a tribute to the people's dedication right, to right. reach those standards. But we should never lose sight of the fact that there should be uh, equity and equality in schools. And that mm -hmm. was denied segregated schools for the most part. Mm -hmm. You know, there were a number of people with uh, historically black colleges. They were educators in the North that you know, felt strongly they'd go down and supplement the, uh, the staff. And of course, they're very bright people there too, but they had a struggle. I mean, that they had to really do twice as much to achieve the same result. And I think that's the great uh, injustice that we really have to look at. Right. Uh, the, poor pay, the poor pay higher school yeah. taxes proportionally than, than the wealthy. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's an obscenity. I, I was struck uh, in reading the book, I think the only time I sensed that Ken was angry, really angry. And that was when the uh, Harvard uh, African-American, the Black uh, uh, Student Association was great. Right, right. And, and, and the argument being by the administration, well, that's racist. And you remind us that Harvard had these clubs. I know right. Yale, Skull and Bones and all that nonsense, but I don't know what they were at Harvard, but which were legacy clubs and which were exclusive and which denied people. And yet, the first time someone from um, outside of the elites set something up and could be justified in terms of support system, it was denied. Right. Was, uh, please talk about that. Well, the thing about that, that was so benign, it was just such hypocrisy. And they had the nerve to tell us that if we would change our charter from saying this was a club only, you know, open to uh, members, classmates of African and African-American heritage. Uh, if we would change that uh, or take that out of our charter, they would, uh, it would be, it would be fine. And we, yeah, but you could still, you could still be all black. You just wouldn't write black. it down. You just wouldn't write it down, which was how those social clubs, the final clubs mm -hmm. were. And we didn't want to deal with that hypocrisy. Plus the other thing, the irony is that we did, it wasn't like we were, you know, wanting to go out and demonstrate or wanted to tear the buildings down or burn them down. Not yet, anyway. Not yet, yeah, but we just wanted <laughs> to have a, you know, have a, be able to invite some speakers in. And if you were sanctioned by Harvard, you could, you know, uh, uh, you could solicit members during registration. You could use the Harvard buildings. Uh, there were funds, funds for some yeah. other clubs that you could, for the club that you could invite people in, that sort of thing. So we had, so our objectives were really sort of innocent and which made us even more pissed off uh, that they would uh, object to that. Yeah, well, what are, you know, fraternities, I was in a fraternity for a very short time and they're, they're, they're kind of horrible in the way in which they, <laughs> right. it just was bad. And, right. Uh, right. So anyway, yeah, that was, that was a interesting, interesting thing, but you know, I, you you had we have you talked about the black table. Yeah. I, I was an administrator in a school district, and there'd be a hundred people at our retreats. All you know, hundred principals, vice principals, directors. I was in an urban school, Tacoma. We had a black table. You know, like I, you know, we still you know, when we would have our retreats, all of the principals would be together, and um, 
So it's, um, you know, those are some, some things that I think we're getting better at, a lot better at, but we still have, have some ways to go on that. I don't know. Right, right. right. Your, your thoughts about that. Uh, the other thing I thought was so interesting about you, Kent, and uh, two, two things. One is your grandfather was a dairy farmer and you learned a lot from him and he's uh, North or South Carolina, South Carolina. Or yeah, North? and it was, he was a beef farmer. He had beef cows, man. He had beef cows and uh, I'd go down there. My sister and I would go down there every summer. And uh, that's where I think this sense of... Uh, wanting to farm and be with the animals came from probably right but the the uh, tell the story about your dad and you being a uh, you would work for your dad uh, waxing floors back then right. people would have to wax floors frequently and uh, your dad was a very uh, powerful and proud young uh, uh our older well older old father you had a lot of yeah, respect right. for him and you you were frustrated at how he would code switch when he would come into these homes, you know, that he was such a, a, a powerful and, um, um, you know, strong person. And yet he would, he would act subservient when he would come into these white people's right. homes. And you finally confronted him about that. Tell me about that story. Yeah. I think that's, well, I mean, I, you know, that, that, that when we were, when I was growing up, I mean, that would just drive me crazy. He would, uh, switch to this Uncle Tom sort of subservient uh, kind of role. And when I talked to him about it later, he just said it was much, a much, 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 much later, later, really. Yeah, he was in his- uh, Yeah, he was in his 80s. 80s. But he, uh, you know, he said it was a matter of two things, business and a matter of uh, that we were going into white people's houses and we were dealing with these white women and you had a, you know, be safe and non-threatening and that sort of thing, which was, which I guess made sense at the time in terms of getting business, but it was just, uh, just drove me, uh, you know, drove me crazy. I mean, and, right, uh, right, right. You know, it was a double face, the two faces of uh, blacks and uh, that sort of thing. I, I got to ask you a question. It's a little bit off topic, but uh, both, both of us are reading a book called White Malice. I don't know if you know the book. Um, Susan Williams, White Malice. No. No, I haven't seen it. No. It's, it's, it's an incredible book. The CIA and the Covert Recolonization of Africa. Um, and, and I've read a lot about that before, but this is really great detail. It's an investigative, scholarly work. And it, it essentially deals with Ghana and the early. Really? Wow. Uh, yeah. Ghana and Kenya. Um, and, and Congo and Lumumba in particular. Yeah. But it mentions CIA people who are co-opted. It's shocking how many people around Lumumba had been recruited or touched by the CIA, so on and so forth. We'll mm -hmm. go to that, but there's one particular individual uh, who was an asset for the CIA who ended up at Harvard in 1959. I wondered if you encountered him. His name was Ooh. Washington Agre Chalongo Akuma. Akumu, and he was a Kenyan, and he came from, uh, he was recruited by uh, Front for the CIA to come to the States. Mm -hmm. It was actually uh, legitimately uh, liberationist and as a Pan-African, so, mm -hmm. but, but he was used by the CIA, but he ended up in the uh, International Student Relations Seminar, ISRS at Harvard, 
It's all recounted in a book called Patriotic Betrayal. You may want to read that. Yeah. It was a CIA operation, essentially. Mm -hmm. And then he became a uh, uh, he became a student at Harvard in 1959. So, wow, uh, an undergrad? Do you know? Yes, an undergraduate. An undergrad. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, the other names mentioned was Ted Harris. He was in charge of that program. He was a CIA employee, National Student Association, that mm -hmm. Harvard program, and uh, some other people. You might find it interesting. Yeah. To, uh, yeah. to read about it and. Uh, Akuma, though, has a long history after that as well. But the, yeah. but the author couldn't uh, help but mention that Harvard was a very friendly place to the CIA, that that's where a lot of people. Yeah. yeah. Well, one of the guys in, in our class, we didn't, I, I, don't, I don't think we put it, we didn't put it in the we book. We didn't put it in the book. He didn't want us, he to. Asked us not to. But a guy was, it says that he was uh, associated with the, were in the CIA and, yeah. you know, was- He was of, the Cuban guy. I think we can say it now. Yeah, he yeah, he was the guy from Cuba. I, I, I assume that uh, he might be. That's yeah. just by the nature of the era and the time. Yeah, yeah. And what did he, he was, what was his capacity being a college student working for the CIA, keeping a track on what was- Yeah, I think it was keeping track on us and- On you, I, on you, on your class. On the class. I mean, to make sure everybody, on, on us, on the- the 18 of us, I think that was his job. And, uh, you know, he, he, he said, told it to us off camera, didn't want us to put it in the book. But now when I think about it, he was the only guy that wore three piece suits all the time. <laughs> that was the key. I mean, and and had, a little, had a little ear thing in his ear. Yeah. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Well, he, he, he didn't do a very good job uh, keeping uh, Malcolm X out of the cafeteria. Right, Tell me about right. Malcolm yeah. X. That's true, yeah. Well, I missed, well, he, he luckily he came to a, uh, a, I mean, he was really influ influential influenced the all, I think most of us. And he came to a dinner uh, in Elliott House, which was one of the houses where I, where I live. And he, uh, we had a dinner and uh, he spoke and he was really totally different than in many ways than he was when you saw him, uh, uh, when he gave his speeches and that sort of thing. But it was really great, and it was a great evening. And uh, he handled. There was a, as I recall, an argument that occurred between that happened between him and the, uh, the white professor who was leading the dinner and all that. And uh, they, it had to do with Martin Luther King and the fact that Martin Luther King, this FBI information that come out about Martin Luther King's uh, extramarital activity and all that. So there was a big argument about that. And they were gonna, you know, call down to Martin Luther King at right from the dinner and get a, you know, but he was able to work that out and uh, dissipate the, this, the, the argument, which was really, we were all very impressed by that. Yeah, but, to see um, a black man take down. A yeah, yeah, just, yeah, right. And plus we'd never heard a black person talk about white people that way. I mean, that was like, uh, wow, that was like rebel, revolutionary. We were all uh, impressed by that. But throughout the whole co uh, college, the four years, we were, there was increasing pressure as to what we were going to do. Uh, 
do we, you know, our classmates in the South are getting jailed and uh, punished and uh, here we are in this sort of, and killed and here we are in this horrible bubble. And it really was a bubble. I mean, it was uh, any kind of uh, racism was really very subtle and very overt. Right. In, in fact, it happened. And, I think behind closed doors. Yeah, behind too. closed doors, I guess. And uh, Well, that'd be, uh, you know, getting in a dust up with Malcolm X, it'd be like, you know, getting in a road rage and the guy getting out of the car is Mike Tyson. You know, you just, uh, <laughs> right. it's, not, it's not a good, that's not a good choice. I don't, not I don't a good know. Choice. I was right. impressed with uh, the scholarship because one of your classmates was from Pittsburgh. Yeah, yeah. my roommate. I very, very carefully read the section on Pittsburgh and his roots and they're exactly on, on the money. Sugar Top, which is an yeah. area in the Hill District here in Pittsburgh. And uh, I shared this story with a, a retired gynecologist friend of mine, an African-American, very light-skinned guy from Florida. And uh, his wife uh, lived in Sugar Top. So we were talking about it and he's going to check it all out in detail. But I do know Shenley High School well. My uh, uh, youngest daughter went to Shenley High School before it was closed. Oh, and, really? Wow. Yeah. So it's it's uh, it's true to the the, the the discussion of the setting is very true. It's exactly. Well, that's good right. because yeah. we. I don't think either one of us has ever been to Pittsburgh. We just Jack was good at and Jack's brother. Jack's brother told us about. Yeah. yeah. Well, you captured it very well. Very nice. Oh, good. Great. Good. That's good. Yeah. A, a, another classmate that I thought was very interesting uh um is old davidson yeah you bet i, I you this is a fellow that's a, a well you shouldn't throw this word around lightly but i would say probably genius level you know with yeah. his oh, yeah. mm -hmm. uh, a biochemist a pianist a bass player a drummer an uh, athlete a remarkable athlete yeah uh, and yet he was suffered from mental illness obviously it seems probably yeah. um I, I don't know what the diagnosis would be but it'd be um, um schizophrenia or maybe bi bipolar with manic psychotic features he was just a brilliant brilliant yeah, yeah. fellow um tell us about about him i mean i didn't really i didn't really know him that well i mean he and i had a few i guess conversations but i mean uh and I, and I and I'd listened to his music a bit. Right. And uh, yeah, he was really brilliant. I mean, he was, uh, uh, he, where did he come from? A, pr a pretty fundamentalist. Uh, oh, yes. A very, um, some fundamentalist, evangelical, you know, fringe sort of uh, yeah. religious group his parents were into fire there's the word fire is not i forget what it was but we did try to talk to as many people we could find who knew him and yeah he he had demons as well as right you know his his intel is you know stellar intellect i mean the the funny thing about the book is that he 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 made one one recording uh lowell davidson trio trio and the drummer on it, uh, Milford Graves, was a guy I'd gone to high school with. Oh, uh, and, what a uh, surprise that was. <laughs> yeah, he, we both went to Boys High and we both lived in Queens at the time. And I would ride the bus with him every morning. 
in the subway to get to get to Brooklyn where Boyce I was. And uh, it was just very ironic that he was on the same album with him. But, and, and, and actually we thought about trying to do a book, uh, another book on Moon, but we just couldn't, couldn't uh, there's get- There's just so little. It, yeah, there's not many people yeah, left at right. Moon. And plus, I mean, the music is very uh, sort of avant-garde and abstract. And I just couldn't, couldn't understand it. I mean, I'm not a very- Right, I think it should be, if it's done, it should be done by someone who understands the music because it was so central to who he was. Yeah. Uh, I don't think we put it in the book, but the one of our respondents said that the last time he saw Lowell, he was on the street, just pulling in other homeless people and giving them music lessons about this music that he was so taken by. And it was I don't know if you've ever listened to the I did. Music I listened to the whole album. It's a little ethereal. It's um, yeah. Uh, I mean, it's you know, but he, he hooked up with Ornette Coleman and right. uh, you know, I right. mean he's like a real that, that, legitimate uh, label. Uh, that's ESP disc label. That's right. right. Yeah. It was uh it began as an Esperanto disc and it came in at a particular oh. juncture when the uh, so-called avant-garde or free jazz movement was really growing. Right. It was the cutting edge of that. Pharaoh Sanders. Was ESP right. one one zero zero two and and Archie Shep was on it. All the all the free jazz players were on it. I didn't know the album. I still don't know it. But uh, Gary Peacock was the bass player. Milford Graves yeah. Graves is a icon of free jazz. And like uh, most of those people, most of the folks that were engaged in that were totally dedicated, like him, yeah. not alone. Yeah. And ended up when they were making music driving a taxi cab or waiting on tables right. or struggling, but they were totally dedicated to where that music was going at that yeah. juncture. Uh, so, so, you know, I've, I've got all those old discs. I don't have his, I got to find that one. Yeah. And actually on the, on the, on the 23 minute uh, sort of sample trailer we did, we use his music. Uh, yeah. I could music. tell. Yeah. 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 Yeah, that's right. We're we're having Gerald Horn on in two weeks. He wrote a book on jazz. Oh really? And, oh. and um, that's um, jazz uh, and politics. Yeah, it's it's very very good book. I I have a confession to make. I didn't know who Gerald Horn was until we had him on, and then all of a sudden I started looking at his work and his production, and I realized that I'm a complete idiot. That you're <laughs> that, that he is one of our premier historians of our time, and I. <laughs> who so yeah, yeah anyway i'm smarter than i was a year ago so <laughs> that, that's well, how do you i mean you guys really read the books though i mean that's really oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We, to, uh... we, well we started by we started by sharing books back and forth and then i said well why don't we do a podcast then we started asking people to be on our podcast and yeah. and and we've had really just wonderful people um, yeah. uh, stopping by and so that's half the I mean, how are you able to read all the books I mean do you guys as fast readers or how do you do that I think Pat cheats because I can't keep up with him I, 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 <laughs> I come too fast I think he's got a, a, a guide somewhere that has a summary of it all that he, I, he read them because he just devours books <laughs> but you gotta read this uh, and he'll say, I'm halfway through it. And I, I started and I struggled through it. <laughs> well, so. I will I will tell you a confession. Um, I, I have a pretty bad learning disability and, and struggle reading. 
So yeah. I have all of these. So I discovered that if I listen to books on tape, I retain them at a level that's actually pretty darn good. Oh, really? Wow. So I get, I have a, 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 a scanner that I use that uh, uh, set up that scans the books. I can scan a book in about 20 minutes and uh, I, I read. I, I go on four mile walks a day and I'll read a, oh. I'll read a couple books a week. So that's my, oh. that's my, and, and the funny okay. thing is, is, is I am so auditory in how I process information. Greg is completely the opposite. <laughs> if, if, if I send him a, a YouTube video, we'll say, just, just send me the transcript. I don't, you know, he, he, he can't, he can't take things in. You know about all you know about all that, Gene, with your study of education. Now some people just have different ways of processing information, and it takes a while for them to figure it out. So, so. But what speak, a what a rich story that uh, that book is. It really was uh, captivating. Um, great, great. Again, I <laughs> I missed the index because I wanted to go back as I was going through it and reconnect with people. Yeah. yeah. What did Ken say about them? What what, what was uh, discussed earlier? So. Yeah, I, I don't want to harp on it, but but that's how good the book is. I mean, there are a lot of books that don't deserve indexes. Right. That book, uh, that book is a really very good book. Thank you. Thank you. So I, I one last thing. Um, you've got a great podcast, uh, you two, with the. Uh, um, I'm not. Oh, oh you don't. Do, you were no. on it occasionally, though, aren't you, Gene? I ever have. Oh, so no, that's his thing. That's his thing. She washes her hands of Kent's podcast. I mean, the problem with our podcast is that we do it once a week and it goes so fast, it's tough to read the books. I mean, you know, uh, I have to really try and increase my reading speed. But I mean, luckily, we usually get about 14, 15 people on a call on a Zoom podcast. Yours aren't all authors. No, and sometimes they're not. Yeah, they're not politicians, activists. But I mean, it's fun to do, and it's good to have, you know, all of the fourteen people on the call usually know something about the subject, so we keep it going. But I mean, I really like doing it, and you know, it's 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 fun. I like how you disagree with each other respectfully and and in a fun way and uh can call each other out and change your opinions and i don't know it just is it's it's a great it's a great podcast very eclectic different subjects good, and good, and good, of good. course greg you're a friend of the show right yeah yes. yeah i, I, I it's it's an honor to be on it i really enjoy it they're they're, they're challenging and they're and they are fun uh well you have a project plan i mean you're so young and dynamic the two of you uh surely you have numerous projects you're you're looking forward to no, we don't. No, I'm trying to write a novel. I mean, that's like, it's uh, sort of a- That's sort of like Farming, isn't it? <laughs> huh? Yeah, it's, it's like Farming. Like yeah. yeah, it's like Farming, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. But I don't know, I mean, I, I just, uh, yeah, I, I'm not sure what to do next. I mean, I do a news show on every Friday uh, from a, local, uh, a network news show. Uh, oh, really? So I've been doing that, yeah. It's called the 801 and it's on WIOXradio.org, uh, which is a local station here, but it's a, we go out on the internet. So I do that uh, once, a, once a week. Give me the call oh, letters yeah. again. Give me the call oh, letters. Uh, WIOX 
Okay. 91.3. 91.3 FM WIOX, and, and we go out on, we stream on WIOXradio.org. Okay, and, good. And uh, it's pretty much of a, so I do the, a Friday morning show uh, every week. And for the last 14 years, I've given free English and Spanish lessons to anybody who needs them. <laughs> oh, that's good. That's good. Because it has been helping me with yeah, we, yeah, we have a pretty growing, large, or growing Hispanic community up mm -hmm. here in upstate New York. So. And you're in Mexico how long each year? You go there for a few weeks, a month? Uh, Depends. Some years yeah. we've gone for, the, I think the longest we stayed was about three months. About three months, yeah. And the shortest right. is about three weeks. So. Yeah. But we haven't been We haven't been because of COVID. We're hoping right. to get down here in November. Are you, are you both bilingual or just you, Gene? Just Gene. That's all you need is just one. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, that I'm learning. I'm learning. Good. But when we get shaken down by the police, I'm like, "Can you've got to handle this once. And I'm not going to always do this. <laughs> I know. So one last question. Who was more fun to work with, Dan Rather or Tom Brokaw? Oh, that's a good uh, question. Tom Brokaw. Oh, Tom was. Yeah, yeah. Oh. I mean, he was less, uh, he was calmer, less frenetic. He, and plus he had a, he, he had a real interest in cows. And that's what we will talk about all the time, cows. Cows. cows I'm really yeah. surprised at that. I didn't... Yeah, he came, I guess he came, came from Montana or one of those, oh. uh, but his family had been cows and farming and all that. So he, uh, we talked a lot about cows. <laughs> My father was from Brooklyn uh, and uh, he was a dreamer, always kind of did different things. We were military. And so we were stationed in uh, central Tennessee and uh -huh. he decided he was gonna buy a small farm when we were in central Tennessee and have cows. Uh -huh. And it lasted two weeks until <laughs> he realized how hard, how hard it was really? to do twice it. So the beloved, nice old farmer who was next to us, Archie Mac Todd, just sort of benevolently took over the milking and the managing of our cows. But that's how that's how stupid you can be if you're raised in Brooklyn. I, the first cow he saw, he was 20 years old at the Brooklyn Zoo. You know, he he didn't know, but well, Kent actually was talking about writing a book called Farming Wild, Black, and Stupid. <laughs> well, because my idea was to, you know, what I was going to do was to, my idea was to get this, start the farm. And, I, for, you know, first off, cows are really great animals in the sense that they really have, you know, I started off with sheep and you look into the eyes of these sheep and there's nothing there. But when right. you look into the eyes of a cow, you know, you see some personality and all that stuff. And so I got, and I was actually one of the first organic farmers in the, in the county here. So huh. we're all organic. we had 23 cows that were called Ashers, which is a Scottish breed. Yeah, they're good climbers. It was a hill farm. But you were going to farm with a team. Well, yeah, I was going to farm with no, no, no machines on the farm. So I bought oh, these God. workhorses. <laughs> Beautiful farm. Beautiful horses. And uh, I would spread manure with the horse team and all that. And uh, again, I, it got very hard and uh, I had runaways on the horses. I mean, these horses would, uh, when th th this idea of a workhorse is really not the right term. I mean, workhorses do not want to work. <laughs> and uh, 
you know, had a lot of adventures with those, uh, adventures with the cows getting out. And I mean, it was, uh, you know, so I think it would be make for a good book. That's the other thing. Like, yeah, that uh, comedy, you know. Yeah. <laughs> well, listen, thank you too. This has just been a real treat for me. And I know for you too, Greg, we've, we've been wanting to have, have you on. I'll link to your podcast and books and some other things below. And, um, just keep up the good work. Keep working together. You're a good team. We'll let you know if we think of another. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I'll yeah. And if you need to, if you need some backstory on how people are idiots with cows, then I can give you. <laughs> I can I'll tell you it. about chickens. I know all about chickens. Oh god, <laughs> god. Anyway, there you go. All right, thank you guys. All right, thank Real you. Real pleasure. Thanks. Take care. Yeah.